And we welcome you to the Monday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. It's uh, the last day of November, and I'm really glad that we can spend it with Dr. Art Sear, Clausen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage, Director of the Clausen Center, uh, author of After the Cold War, and uh, also a columnist whose work is read in newspapers across the country and outside the country as well, and uh, a regular contributor to WUWM in Milwaukee, and a regular part of the morning show as well. And we have a lot of interesting and, and exciting things to actually probe into uh, in this conversation, which, by the way, uh, is being recorded on, on uh, actually Tuesday morning, the 24th. So uh, uh, most of the time when we have our conversation with Professor Sear, we record them and air them the very next day for some logistical reasons. There needs to be a little bit of delay. So... Uh, we actually hope that it's a relatively calm and normal Thanksgiving weekend, uh, so that uh, the, so that this interview is 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 uh, fully up to date. And of course, we will be talking uh, primarily, although not exclusively, about the uh, recent presidential election and its uh, and its aftermath. Uh, Professor Sear, we welcome you back to the morning show. Well, thank you, Greg. It's Always good to be invited. It's usually good to be invited back, and certainly the case with you and your fine associates there at 91.1 FM. It's always a pleasure and always instructive. So we are uh, about to, uh, as you and I are recording this, we are uh, in our last day of in-person teaching uh, at Carthage before the Thanksgiving break. And of course, for the remainder of the semester, uh, all teaching will be uh, in, in, the, in the virtual format. Uh, just wonder if you have anything you want to say about uh, this fall semester and some of the challenges and complications that have been part of trying to teach effectively and safely uh, in this time of the uh, COVID-19 pandemic. It's, of course, uh, a challenge that is not unique to colleges and universities, but certainly to uh, public schools as well. And uh, people engaged in any kind of education these have been uh, challenging times. What has this fall semester been like uh, for you and your colleagues in your uh, department in the Clausen Center? Well, I um, have been teaching in person and uh, we have lost a few students in quarantine or otherwise felt they should be moving home. But basically my classes have been going fine and um, I know other people have had other kinds of experiences, but certainly younger people, it's a sociable time in life. Um, one of the many advantages, along with the disadvantages of being very young, and uh, people I think do respond to, um, to example, but uh, that goes both ways. So it's, all, it's, it's actually been quite positive for me. Mm. And in-person instruction has, uh, I'm much relieved. It's, it's gone better than I'd feared, so. Uh, I, I hope this is informative and might even be helpful. But uh, one important fact, one important fact to keep in mind amidst all the uproar and furor and fear and uh, undeniable politicization, political politicization of this public health problem is that uh, uh, it's essentially not a lethal disease. I don't minimize the uh, anxiety people feel and uh, the, diff the really uh, nasty nature of the disease and the fact that people are dying 
mostly older people with pre-existing conditions who have various things wrong with them. But uh, I am confident we will get through this and our listeners should be too. Well, let's turn our attention to this uh, recently completed um, uh, presidential election. And of course, it was more than a presidential election, but of course, uh, it was a momentously important presidential election. And um, you've written a couple of of very interesting columns that I'm uh, excited to uh, do some exploration of. And uh, one of them that I think is, is worth talking about is... And this is something that we, uh, we, we get from you time and time again, and I, I really do appreciate it, is the fact that uh, we are so inclined to um, think of what we are experiencing as unprecedented and unique to modern times, when in fact, uh, in, in many cases, what we are experiencing is actually a road that the country has traveled down any number of times before. And, uh, and you're saying uh, in, the, in uh, one of your most recent columns that uh, even as divided as we are and as heated and as nas- nasty as this uh, pres- presidential uh, campaign was, that this is actually nothing as new as we might think it is <laughs> in terms of American history. Um, tell our listeners some of the ways in which we have actually been down this road before. Uh, yeah, presidential politics reflect our wider society. I think that's the column that you're referring to. And the theme I, I developed, and I've been developing it in um, some longer, more professional, in-depth writing as well, that I hope for publication, is every half century or so our country, since the early 1800s and the War of 1812, every half century we've had considerable turmoil in our politics, including positive reforms that have come out of that. Um, the most, most difficult by far, of course, was the mid, the first half of the 1860s, when we had a, a slight challenge known as the American Civil War, in which over 600,000 men, mostly on the Northern side, perished. Uh, out of that, of course, came the abolition of slavery and the creation finally, at last, of a powerful, unified, federal, united states. Uh, A very wise and insightful person once mentioned that uh, uh, before the Civil War, people referred to the United States are after the Civil War and the profound leadership of Lincoln, President Lincoln and his associates, the United States is. Um, anyway, you referred to a momentous election. Uh, I'd, I'd be glad to argue with you about that. I don't believe it's particularly momentous compared to others. But we are uh, in a period of relative turmoil. Uh, the last such tumultuous period, according to my idea, is the 1960s, which is the one time in my life, I'm fortunate to have been around for a while, that uh, I thought our country was literally coming apart. I don't feel that way now. Thank you for bringing it up. Uh, it probably isn't really my idea. I'm sure someone someone else has brought up this point, but it's certainly worth developing. And thank you, as always, for emphasizing the context of current events. So why do you think, uh, <laughs> I suspect you're going to blame the media, and probably rightfully so, but... but no, no, that's Donald Trump. That's not me, buddy. 
No, I love the media, but, but especially I, uh, WGTD. Right. But my question is, why, why, why does, why did this uh, presidential election feel so momentous? Even if, in your view, it was not, in fact, momentous. Uh, I think f for a lot of us, I'll include myself, it it felt momentous. It felt like a uh, very critical tipping point, and I think people on both sides of the aisle felt that. And depending on whether you were relieved or or deeply dismayed by the results of the election, I think the vast majority of Americans feel like this was a momentous election and much hung in the balance. Well, why do you uh, feel that way, Greg? Well, I don't think this show is about me and what I think, but I mean, surely you would, surely you would acknowledge that most Americans had that kind of feeling, had that kind of sentiment about this election, whether or not they should have felt that. I mean, and I guess my question is, uh, where do you think that sense of momentousness came from? I mean, that perception that that the future of our country was hanging in the balance with this with this election. Um, well, again, I don't, I'm not trying to duck the question. I'll be glad to discuss it further. I know what you're talking about, obviously. I myself don't feel that way, so I'm probably not the best right. person to whom you should address the question. But the media does play a role, and we now have a 24-7 um, news cycle that's pervasive. News for various reasons, including the fact that technology has made information uh, very helpful, insightful, commentary, noise, misinformation, pervasive. I think that adds, adds to a sense of drama and a, and a sense of anxiety. One of your guests a few days ago was a woman who's written an entire book on anxiety and how to cope with it and manage it. And uh, as always, I found your interview with someone else instructive. And uh, uh, I, I think the media is, is, is a much more um, unavoidable mirror of what's going on. We also had enormous turnout. Um, and being around for a while does, does add some perspective. When I was young, in the 60s and 70s, a great public concern was low turnout. People aren't voting the way they should in a responsible, stable democracy. Young people aren't voting, oh my goodness, is the future of our country at risk? The, um, uh, the younger generation is busy with a lot of challenges in life anytime, at any point in history, and uh, younger people generally don't vote. I think the turnout is one thing that's very reassuring about the recent contest. And there are other things that are reassuring. I tend to give answers that are entirely too long, so I'll stop at that point. But I don't think it was a particularly momentous election. I don't think the future of the country was at stake in contrast to the 1860s, and in my view, the 1960s. Um, another question that came to mind as I read your really interesting column about this is, do you have any sense, I don't remember you exactly exploring this, but maybe you did, um, why this tends to happen over the course of roughly every half century? Is there something about that particular period of time or is it largely kind of happenstance that that's the cycle that we sort of see in terms of roughly every 50 years or so, our country endures something rather uh, tumultuous and, 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 and wrenching? Is there any particular reason why this occurs at that and especially at that sort of interval? 
I don't know. I think it's more than coincidence, but let me emphasize, I don't know. We are a very, very diverse democracy in ways that are literally true and much more important than the current emphasis in academia and the media and some sectors of society on diversity and inclusiveness, the latest mantra in literal terms beyond political ideology and, and, uh, and political agendas. We are a very, very diverse country, geographically, ethnically, racially, as we all know. We're a vast economy with an almost limitless uh, collection of interests, many of them powerful, coming together. The pressure um, seems to build up every half century or so. I don't think it's just coincidence, but uh, people who are, who are relatively cerebral that is reflect on, on developments, and I'd include you in that category and myself, we tend to look for patterns and we tend to look for things beyond random developments. And that can provide insight, it can also be dangerous. So I think it's one reason why Eisenhower warned against having professors in government, even though he certainly hired his share. I appreciated the fact that um, you, in this column, go back to other chapters in our history in which our politics have been pretty nasty and pretty divisive. And oh. I will I will fully acknowledge as a member of the media that uh, I think this is probably one of the most serious bits of disservice that the media has served up to the to the to the public is feeding this idea that presidential pet politics have never been as nasty as they are right now. And uh, I think you rightly point out that that's simply not true. And to say that uh, reveals one's ignorance of where we've been and uh, the way in which uh, presidential politics has played out in our history. I mean, not always. Sometimes it's relatively cordial, relatively civilized, and sometimes it's uh, all but brutal in its nastiness. And yeah. it's part of who we are. Yeah, and in, a, in any democracy, um, even relatively small ones, political campaigns that uh, involve the population at large, democratic politics with a small d, given the human condition, I guess, in human nature, it tends to be, it tends to be nasty. One subject that I know is by definition of interest to you and is to me, and I don't know as much as I'd like to, is the professionalization of the media. Uh, starting with World War II, I, I, my impression is that newspaper readership actually expanded tremendously, and there was a kind of culmination of a 20th century trend for journalism to be more professional. The men and women in journalism um, saw themselves as professional with a set of, of uh, standards of integrity that that were essential. I think I think the fact that it, in the 1930s, when so many women entered the workforce for the first time, despite the Great Depression, and the fact that journalism was something that women gravitated to, uh, I think that has something to do with the improvement of journalism. But it wasn't like that earlier. And in the 19th century, in the 1800s, newspapers tended to be extremely partisan. Uh, they were promoting agendas along with providing facts. During the Civil War era, there, there were racial references, and a, thereafter, 
racial references, it would be totally unacceptable today. I saw one cartoon from a major newspaper in uh, the Civil War period of President Lincoln embracing an African-American woman and in ways that were overtly vulgar and sexual. Nothing like that would happen in major media today. But I, I do think the second half of the 20th century was defining. And from my bias point of view, we're falling away from that now with the diversity of media and a sort of abandonment of a sense of professional standards. Right. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Art Sear, Claussen Distinguished Professor of Political Economy and World Business at Carthage College, Director of the Claussen Center, and a monthly visitor to The Morning Show. We've been talking just now about uh, a, a column that uh, he wrote about uh, kind of what our, our most recent presidential uh, election and, and presidential politics in general say about us as a country. By the way, uh, I want to give you a chance to explain why you uh, quote a famous line from the comic strip Pogo at the top of this column. We have met the enemy and he is us. The ironic statement is from the durable comic strip um, Pogo. The lead character was a reflective and pleasant and mild-mannered possum named Pogo, who was the leader of a group of eclectic and generally fascinating swamp creatures. Um, supposed to be a southern swamp somewhere uh, drawn by cartoonist Walt Kelly. Um, it was a play on words. We have met the enemy and they are ours, was the report to the president by Admiral William Hazard Perry after the United States Navy won a great strategic victory over the British the Battle of Lake Erie in 1813 during the um, uh, War of 1812, the war we ought to pay more attention to. Hmm. So that, that was the genesis. It was fun. Uh, I remember when I was a freshman at Luther College in the fall of 1978, the very first chapel talk I heard was given by a venerable old uh, religion professor named uh, Harris Casa, and I remember his chapel talk opened with that quote, and I barely knew what Pogo was, but I remember being amazed that at college it was okay to quote a comic strip, and I remember thinking, <laughs> college will be okay. We can talk about things like comic strips. It's not going to be man goes to college and realizes the world is pretty wild. And right, and so it's not just 800-page tomes, so very good. You uh, also wrote recently about the Electoral College, and of course, uh, there has been a lot of conversation about that, even though this current election did not involve uh, the, the kind of the split where one candidate wins the popular vote, and, uh, but the other wins the Electoral College, and that, of course, carries the day. But that did I happen, of course, in 2016, yeah. and I think it's happened, uh, I forget, five or six times in our nation's history. And... and in the wake of 2016, there were lots of calls for abolishing the Electoral College. And uh, uh, you wrote a column uh, trying to set out the reasons why we have this kind of odd system, or might seem kind of odd, uh, maybe a little bit complicated. Why don't we just tally up the votes and there you go. Uh, but you explained that the creation of the Electoral College by the founders of our nation was all about uh, trying to avoid too much concentration of power. They, uh, in your words, the founders opposed uncompromised concentration of power. 
Explain the, the mechanics of how the Electoral College, at least potentially, can do this. Uh, well, I'm not an expert on the Electoral College, and uh, I, I, don't, I don't have all the ins and outs at the tip of my tongue, but um, you make the essential point. The Founding Fathers were fearful and opposed to concentrations of power, um, including any kind of monarch, although George Washington was such a phenomenal leader and such uh, a tremendous unifying figure, as well as the military commander who was essential to us, surviving and finally winning our long, brutal revolution against the British. But whether it was the British monarch or the British cabinet in parliament or the parliament itself, any concentration of power was dangerous and is generally classically educated uh, individuals who were quite aware of the challenges provided by angry mobs, not only in the colonies in their direct experience, but also in ancient Athens and ancient Rome. Uh, they very much feared um, any untrammeled power, including the public at large, uh, without filters. So they set in place a system of government that is extremely complicated and has also proven to be extremely durable. The Electoral College, uh, to actually answer your question, is a um, system that emphasizes the states. Um, electors come together, and whether any president concedes or not uh, is a great interest of the media and some interest of the people, but it has nothing to do with the transition of power. The Electoral College meets, uh, I believe, around the turn of the year, and the electors, uh, who, who um, you have an elector for each member of Congress and, the, and two more or the two senators, uh, they, um, they picked the president. And there have been efforts to change. There were lots of complaints after 2016, but like a lot of things in our life today, people send out tweets and talk to the media and uh, put stuff on their Facebook page and they think they're working. In the 50s and 60s, there were very powerful efforts to change, indeed abolish the Electoral College, which are extremely interesting. And I think that's the last time even though we did not have um, kind, of, kind of headaches that we had in 2016 and 2000, don't forget. Uh, that was a really powerful reform effort. And if you want to understand the dynamics of the situation, uh, two politicians by the name of John F. Kennedy and Richard Nixon are worth studying, along with, along with Lyndon Johnson, Birch Bayh from Indiana, and Strom Thurmond, the segregationist from South Carolina. Uh, a lot of powerful, effective people and interests were involved in the effort to change the Electoral College back then. Right. So, as, as you point out, this, this really has a whole lot to do with urban-rural, the split of urban and rural and the fact that, I, I think the last I read was that roughly our split as a population is something like 80-20. Uh, I mean, you know, the vast majority of Americans live in urban environments and and if we just went by straight popular vote so much of our politics would be driven entirely by in a sense the big metropolitan areas and their cities um and and then the folks in nevada and wyoming and wherever um are senate kind of left out of of the balance but the electoral college is a way to kind of write that balance and make sure that uh, all of the voices are heard, urban and rural both. Is that essentially it? 
I'm very glad you said metropolitan along with urban because we're not an urban country. We are an urban suburban country. Mm. In fact, the balance of power today is held by the suburbs. Mm. But you make a much more important point that uh, sparsely populated parts of the country are, by definition, underrepresented um, in a lot of aspects of our electoral system. From my, in my opinion, I support the electoral college. From my point of view, um, the electoral college helps write that balance. Direct popular election, as you imply, would lead to campaigns focused on concentrated metropolitan populations. Donald Trump's 2016 electoral college victory permitted representation of an enormous and I think it's fair to say quite angry and alienated, but diffused population. This confirmed, from, in my opinion, the Founding Fathers' intent in establishing the Electoral College. Right. My, my yeah, question... Yeah, the candidates would focus on the... <coughs> excuse me, on the big metro areas, and literally people would be neglected in the rest of the country. If you look at a map, your question was really very insightful. If you look at a map, it's overwhelmingly red except for a few blue areas, mostly on both coasts, and then the Gulf Coast as well, and, and uh, the inland, the inland uh, great bodies, the Great Lakes, Chicago, and other cities, but it's overwhelmingly in territory, Trump country. Right, and, and, if, and, if, and if we went by straight popular vote, there would be no reason for either candidates to wander to Topeka, Kansas or wherever. I mean, because that's just that's just not that would not be significant in the in the grand scheme of things or be easy to think so. My question, uh, which was uh, prompted by your your really persuasive column. I mean, I I think I understand better even than I did before about the purpose of the Electoral College and why there is some wisdom there. I wonder if you see the potential of perhaps the math being changed. And I guess I, I ask that because, I mean, mathematically, we are nevertheless talking about, in effect, a voter in Wyoming and a voter in California, the weight of their individual votes uh, is, is, is vastly different or, or significantly different, let's say, significantly different. And I sometimes think I could, I could live more happily with an electoral college if maybe the numbers were just a little bit different and different, and that divide was not quite as pronounced as it is. In other words, yes, the voters of Wyoming should have a significant say, but maybe numerically it doesn't need to be what it is right now. <laughs> uh, would you see any point in revisiting the math of the Electoral College, or do you think that is something that we should not be tinkering with at all? Uh, no, we the founders set in place is we have one of the oldest. Um, I'm not sure it is, but it almost is the oldest written constitution in the world. There are banana republics and uh, tin horn dictatorships that have come and gone, and have had constitutions that are hundreds, if not thousands, of pages long, and they're very abbreviated representative systems that have had very, very long con convoluted constitutions. I think the genius of our founders is they have put in place a system that diffuses power but also can be changed. The Constitution's only been amended 27 times, and our system of 
remains in place. I, I certainly don't have strong feelings about the Electoral College, fortunately, and um, I told you what I think, but I could well be wrong, and I'm confident the system will change. It's changed a lot since then. Women did not have the vote. African-American slaves did not have the vote. We had masses of white, um, non-African indentured ser servants of all kinds. Um, you had to own property. Very few um, uh, men who were free citizens, actually, relatively few voted back then. We've gradually expanded the system, quite rightly, as um, our society has evolved. And the genius of the founders was to put in place a mechanism that could be changed. But it's not easy to change. It takes a lot of work. Right. One of the interesting, excuse me, you were going to say something. No, I was just, I, I just wanted to, I just want to burrow in on this central point of, uh, I mean, it's it's one thing to call for the abolishment of the Electoral College. It's another to retain it, but maybe tweak the math a little bit. So maybe Wyoming has two instead of three, and maybe California has 58 instead of 55. But I mean, to maybe, because you know we're not the same nation demographically that we were uh, when this system was put in place. I was just wondering if, you're comfortable with tweaking the math of the Electoral College. Yeah, I support the system, and it's a system that's open to change. I may have, ah. I'm sure I talked long enough, but I may not have been clear enough. Yes, the genius of our system is it can be changed, but change is not easy. Right. And um, the system does enshrine the rule of law as we understand the rule of law. The common law system directly inherited from our British uh, mentors as well as colonial rulers back then. Mm. It is not only the unit vote for the presidency we are talking about, but a whole solar system of government. That was John F. Kennedy, then a senator, taking the conservative point of view in 1956. There was a wow. very intense debate in Congress. Kennedy was uh, um, not an active legislator, partly because he was running for president constantly from the start, <laughs> partly because he had a whole, as we know now, but covered up then, he had a whole array of health problems. Just getting to work was, was an ordeal for him. But he was really active and dynamic in the Electoral College debate, and he kept returning to the theme, if we tinker with one aspect of our system, it will have an impact on the others that we're not wise enough to foresee. Hmm a very, very strong voice for reform um, was Richard Nixon after he was just barely elected president in 1968. It's an interesting twist of two. We tend to think of the Democrat, especially today, as the more liberal. But in point of fact, Kennedy played a role in keeping the status quo. <coughs> and Nixon supported an effort that came very close to um, actually abolishing the Electoral College. Wow. Uh, That's amazing. The irony of that is just incredible. The even greater irony is segregation of Senator Strom Thurmond. Durable, in, in uh, any way, very destructive, but occasionally positive uh, leader from South Carolina. Uh, he played a crucial role by appealing to, get this, African-American and Jewish organized interests in the Northeast. He concentrated his time in the state of New York, and they were crucial to undercutting the effort to abolish the Electoral College. Wow. 
that is very intriguing indeed. <laughs> wow. Well, I, I, uh, I, and I, and it's probably wise that it's not easy to tinker with something as important as the electoral college. Would you like me to tell you why <laughs> he was able to establish this strange alliance with these northeastern interests? Sure. Okay, I will briefly. New York was a swing state then, uh, un unlike today. Our politics uh, were more fluid, except in the solid Democratic South, which was becoming Republican. Um, in order to have a major impact, uh, candidates, in, in order ultimately to win, candidates would literally lobby interests and established lobbies in the Northeast. New York could be in play. Republicans took New York uh, into the 1960s and, uh, and afterwards, Ronald Reagan's landslide victories in the 80s. What Thurman told African-American and Jewish leaders is you have a pivotal role in our politics. If we abolish the Electoral College, New York as a heavy block of votes that could go either way um, will no longer really be in play to such a significant degree. And if you go along with this effort that President Nixon is now supporting to abolish the Electoral College, you'll have less influence. So you had the ironic, you may call it an unholy alliance, but the ironic situation of a, a committed segregationist politician using liberal groups to help keep in place the Electoral College. What provided strong motivation was the presidential election of 1968, where thank God Nixon won the popular vote and an Electoral College majority. But another 10,000 votes the other way in Tennessee. And 50,000 votes in Ohio would mean that no candidate had won the electoral majority. It was Nixon, Humph Hubert Humphrey, the Democratic nominee, and George Wallace, a, a, a very dangerous and rapidly segregationist third-party candidate. His goal was not to win the election, but to throw it into the House of Representatives, which constitutionally is where it goes when the Electoral College cannot um, uh, Bring, bring a victor with a majority. And it would, it would have really been a devil's playground had that happened. Mm. Politicians really focused on the need for change. And the House of Representatives, by an overwhelming majority, passed a bill to abolish the Electoral College. Senator Birch Bayh, an ambitious younger senator from Indiana, uh, there were lots and lots of Jack Kennedy clones, uh, lots and lots of younger politicians, not just the Democratic Party were sort of the good-looking, dynamic, cerebral um, sort of leader. And Bai was able to get Lyndon Johnson's attention in the 60s, and there was tremendous momentum by 68. It would have passed in the Senate. Nixon strongly favored it right away when he finally got to the White House, but Thurman was able to upend that. Uh, and the segregationist kept their hold for the moment on the South. But that was followed uh, thanks to Lyndon Johnson's passage of civil rights, historic civil rights legislation in 64, 65, the civil rights and voting rights bills. Uh, that was followed by the enfranchisement of African-Americans in the South. And what you are rightly emphasizing, even though we have an electoral college, we have a system where popular representation uh, has become 
in the 20th century far more far more broad than it was before then. Let's talk for a moment uh, about the fact that uh, in the wake of the election, uh, current President Donald Trump refused to concede. I mean, as we record this interview, uh, he has still not conceded the election and there are still lawsuits in place and so on. Um, I'm just wondering what you see as the the lasting significance of that, if, if you see any significance at all. I suspect, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I suspect that uh, you, you think that, uh, that that most people worried about that and upset by that were probably more worried or upset than they should have been, that there are systems in place by which ultimately this would have righted itself, whatever President Trump might, might, might say or do. Uh, but, but do you have any concerns about this, uh, about the, the president's decision not to concede the election in the way that is customary? Has that done any damage or been, been uh, worrisome to you in any way? No. Okay. <laughs> That's why it's good we spend so much time on the Electoral College, which is where the power resides. Whether the president concedes or not um, is immaterial. I think, as I've said before in your program, there's a, an alliance, which I think of as an unholy alliance, between the media at large and the president. If uh, you, you folks would stop covering his every word, every tweet, uh, every insult, every outrageous and not outrageous statement, I think he would disappear very quickly, actually, even though he remains in office till the inauguration of the new president. Emily Murphy, who's not a household name, uh, political appointee and a Trump supporter who was put in charge of the General Services Administration, which actually gets the work done in terms of the enormously complicated transition from one administration to the next. She's already started working with the Biden people <coughs> in a very detailed way. So the machinery is moving. Well, I, now it is, but, I, a couple, I mean, but that's, a, that's a couple of weeks after the election. Uh, I mean, she was, she was rather stubbornly refusing to set those wheels in motion. That's my understanding until maybe just uh, yesterday as we are recording this. Um, but those wheels yeah. are moving now, you're correct. Yes, we'll be broadcasting after Thanksgiving. And today you and I can give thanks that the system is working uh, and give us something to feel good about as right. we consume our Thanksgiving dinner. No, I'm not, I'm not being... Uh, intentionally glib or even trying to be funny. The system does work. And uh, Trump, to a remarkable degree, is a creature of the media. And his antics help uh, news people who are not really news people. Think of it. Uh, what, what we call news today is very, very long. It's 24-7. A lot of it is entertainment. A lot of it is filler. Uh, populated by people who really want to be actors and actresses, but are doing this gig as something to collect a paycheck, and maybe it'll turn into a long-term career. But the news profession relates to earlier comments in our interesting discussion. The news profession isn't really the news profession anymore. It's entertainment. And if you stop covering everything that Trump does, I don't think he's actually done much as president. Uh, he, he would fade more quickly than some other presidents. What about the matter of 
millions and millions of Americans uh, joining President Trump in doubting the results of this election. I mean, who believe in their hearts of hearts that somehow this election was stolen, uh, that that uh, unsavory things happened behind closed doors, that uh, illegitimate votes were counted or votes were counted twice or whatever, and that somehow this election was railroaded. Uh, it, it seems, I, I mean, I'm, I don't remember that in my lifetime, those kind of serious questions being uh, raised about this this system. And do you see anything that we should be worried about in terms of so many Americans uh, having serious doubts about the process itself and that and, uh, I, I don't think that's unprecedented it's unusual for a president to um, uh, constantly harp on and emphasize this theme it's why the rule of law is important and why serious media remains extremely important there's no consequential evidence uh, that's yet come to light uh, things may have changed by the time this program is broadcast, but I doubt it. There's no really consequential evidence. Uh, moreover, since the 1960s, um, federal as well as state and local laws and law enforcement have become much more um, honest, defensible, effective. Uh, there are people in federal prison now uh, we're ba you and I are based not far from Chicago. There are people in federal prison now uh, and who have done time uh, who did who were, the crimes they committed were part of doing business in the 1960s. And uh, up until that time and well into the 70s, we are in fact a much more law-abiding country where, where political chicanery that, you know, you and I and others might joke about, but actually is is pretty serious violations of uh, the way the system should work that's no longer the case right uh so again, again historical perspective should be reassuring yeah a lot of people believe that the president is feeding that sentiment there is no hard evidence yet that that's the case that's not that's not gonna persuade diehard trump supporters the election was stolen he's he's obviously the guy's a genius at uh, becoming and maintaining a media celebrity with a huge following and that's where he's really made money in his long life and career. Uh, he's building a media base for after the White House, and as uh, people and others increasingly speculate, he may be uh, he's still alive and able to do it. Um, he's pretty old. Another run in 2024. Interesting. But I, I don't think it's any cause for alarm. I know your concern is very serious, and you take your work very seriously. I, I really want to emphasize there is no cause for real alarm about a stolen election. Right. No riots in there are no riots in the streets. I, I really worried in 1968 that my God, my country's coming apart literally. That's not happening today. Excuse me, I interrupted you. Yeah. No, I was just saying I I mean I agree with you that there is no credible evidence, and I appreciate you reinforcing the point that. Uh, that things are actually a, a more orderly and just and, and law-abiding system now than they were a few decades ago. I mean, if anything, Americans should be far less worried about uh, a presidential election somehow being stolen. What I'm alarmed about is the fact that tens of millions of Americans fervently do believe that. 
I mean, despite the facts that you have just laid out. And, and so my concern is with what do we do with that? Where do we go from here? Uh, and and uh, what kind of conversations do we need to have uh, about this uh, when, when yeah. we have so many Americans so deeply troubled about what just occurred with this election? Early on, you want to talk about the sort of 50-year dynamic. Every half century, there's particular, particular turmoil in the United States. In earlier periods, including during the um, 1960s and during the uh, great labor and economic and social turmoil early in the 20th century, uh, we, we literally had tremendous riots in the streets. Large numbers of people were killed. Civic violence, I mean, real, real violence and disorder was part of these, these periods. We're not actually experiencing that today. There's a lot of verbal violence and mayhem in the media, which is so pervasive, but we are not experiencing that kind of actual violence. And the fact that the rules have changed and, are, and the rules are being enforced is really important. I, two of the most challenging and difficult years I spent in my work life were running the World Trade Center in Chicago. Mm. A lot of debt. Uh, I'm very proud of what we accomplished. I was hired only because they were almost gone. We did not fire anyone. It's amazing what people will do for you when you don't fire them. <laughs> you show a lesson I learned very early in my life in the U.S. Army, an institution which puts loyalty to uh, our own above everything else for good reasons. You're dealing with life and death, not just dollars and cents. Uh, the chairman of the Trade Center who hired me, which I appreciate, uh, when I left, we had no debt and a lot of money in the bank and I was glad to move on to Carthage College. I'm very proud of what we accomplished. The chairman stopped by to see me one day. Um, he had a very pressured law firm schedule at the time. He was going to see his good friend, Dan Rostenkowski, a very powerful congressman. It really wasn't, and he went to prison. And our chairman was going down to Stateville to, to visit his buddy. And in all seriousness, he said to me, you know, Art Danny's not a crook. He's not a crook. They changed the goalposts on us. They changed the goalposts. Animated on the subject, and he was right. Paul Powell was a very colorful uh, Chicago machine op operative. I think he was treasurer of the state of Illinois. In addition to his family home, he kept an apartment in downtown Chicago. And when he died um, unexpectedly in this very rather barren apartment, was uh, uh, a suitcase filled with cash and a case of creamed corn. And uh, outside of the bed in the nightstand, that was about it. And uh, Wag said, well, that's, that's final confirmation that Powell would take anything. But being able to take was, was part of doing business. And that, that has faded in Chicago. I appreciate uh, the long view perspective that you give us on all of these uh, issues that we kind of tend to react to in the moment. I will plead guilty to that, at least to some extent. And I appreciate the perspective that you, uh, you, you give us that help us understand, first of all, where we are now and how we got here. And maybe even we can wonder about where we're headed. But in the meantime, uh, we have to draw this to a close. Dr. Artsir Claussen, Distinguished Professor at Carthage College, Director of the Claussen Center. It is always a pleasure to speak with you on The Morning Show. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Greg. You're always very gracious, like other people at Carthage. And uh, it's part of my work. Tom Clausen never tried to tell us what to do. I'm proud of our friendship. Uh, I met him after I came to the college. 
and, but he was really attentive to what we were doing in the media. And uh, your program has been an important part of my work for now a long period of time, and it's always nice to be invited back.